Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, 
he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Last year, we were actually on our way back. We'd gone down to be with Ron and Chris when she was down at Mayo last year. On our way back home, we were getting up just south of the cities, and we turned on the radio, came across the pregame show for the Vikings. And we've never been to a Vikings game. And she said, you want to go? Absolutely. And so we went, and it was our first time ever going to a Vikings game, first time going to the new stadium, and, and it was a pretty awesome experience. But one of the things that was kind of amazing down there is is that now with the new stadium, the, the Vikings have their own field, the Twins have their own field, of course the U of M has their fields. And, and so there was, on the night that we went to that game, the traffic and the crowds were pretty bad. Because the Twins had a game that day, the Vikings had a game, the U of M had something going on, I don't remember what it was, and there was one other big huge event on that same day also with all the stadiums and stuff that are down there now, so the place was just teeming with people. I don't think, even with all of that going, I don't think it would quite hold a candle to what Jesus was at when he came into Jerusalem during that Passover festivities. The Passover was an amazing time of year for the Jewish people and they came together and and celebrated. It it was said that you didn't celebrate the Passover effectively or properly unless you celebrated it in Jerusalem. There would be pilgrimages to Jerusalem of all these people that would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. A Passover lamb, they would cover about maybe 10 people usually, and they figured there'd be like some 260,000 animals sacrificed during the Passover time in Jerusalem. They have from a few years after Christ a census that they based it on and they figure that at the time of this Passover there's probably over 2 million people in Jerusalem at that time. In fact, the city officials of Jerusalem would, for the Passover celebration, they would extend the borders. So they might actually be in Bethany, but they're technically allowed to consider themselves in Jerusalem because they extend the borders for that time so that they could kind of fit everybody. So this is an amazing thing. If you're picturing Jesus coming into some little village on a donkey, we got the wrong picture in our mind. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, which is at a time where you have people making pilgrimages there, so it is just teeming with people. It is flooded with people. First thing that we see is Him coming in on what we call the triumphal entry. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on that donkey... And he's presenting himself as a king to Israel. And that's what I want to look at here this morning is the coming of the king. And as we look at the coming of the king through chapter 21, there are five different characteristics of his arrival that I'd like us to pay attention to 
here this morning. The first of the five characteristics of his arrival is he comes with credibility. Now, he's going to accomplish that in two different ways. One of the ways that he's going to do it is through fulfilled prophecy. And all through the book of Matthew, we see a lot of prophecy fulfilled in reference to Jesus Christ in his first coming. When he comes just by riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling prophecy. He quotes Zechariah 9.9, and it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So in that, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He also quotes a passage out of Psalms. That's a very strong credential on his part. When you look at all the prophecies that God spoke beforehand concerning His birth, where He'd be born, that He'd be born by a virgin, He'd be born in Bethlehem, uh, other prophecies that He fulfilled throughout His life, and even in His death. In His death, we're going to see later on that they fulfilled prophecies about what they would do with His clothes when they crucified Him. There's prophecies about what He would drink while He was on the cross. A lot of prophecies that He, if He's just a normal human being, would not have control over. But he's not a normal human being, and that's exactly what's being proved by his fulfillment of prophecy. But not only do we have prophecies, we also have the miracles. The miracles that he's performing, and we've seen a lot of them coming up to this point in the book of Matthew. Matthew spends specific chunks of his book detailing some of the miracles that Jesus did. Notice what it says in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And he's talking about giving sight to the blind and healing the lame. We've seen him feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch. We've seen him walk on water, calm storms, cast out demons, heal lepers, blind see, deaf hear, lame walk. We've seen lots and lots of miracles, and they're just a small sample of what he was doing. They were right there. They saw all these things happen. So Jesus came with great credibility. The last part of verse 33, it says, And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. And at that point, he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, you know what, you didn't listen, you didn't believe John the Baptist when he told you I was coming. And even after you saw it, what is it? When they saw Jesus and the miracles that he performed. He said, even after you saw it, you saw the proof of it, you still, you still did not believe. So Jesus comes with great great credentials between fulfilled prophecy and between the miracles that he was accomplishing right before their eyes. Not only did he come with credibility, he came also in humility. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the full of a beast of burden. Why would a king come humble? King is the top person in the kingdom. If anybody is exalted in the kingdom, it's the king. But Jesus comes humble. That's amazing when you think about it because of who he is. This passage is astounding that it would ever find fulfillment or this prophecy because he comes to us riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. In other words, uh, just a, a work truck, a work, a work vehicle. It's unheard of. Kings would come in on white horses or, or carried by servants in a, in a luxurious, uh, what do you call? I don't know what you call those things. Those platforms that they'd carry around with them in them, or, or with a deluxe chariot. You know, there were ways that a king would come into town as he would travel, but the donkey would not be one of them. That would be like us in our day when we look at it. We don't even have a king. We have a president. But even our president, which wouldn't necessarily compare straight across with a king, what does he travel around in? 
Air Force One and a big motorcade full of limousines. So for us to think about our president traveling around in a motorcade of limousines, and then let's think about it this way. Behold, your king comes to you humble and riding in a gremlin. Do you remember those? Do you remember those? I'm going I'm to remind you. It's probably not very nice because I'd like to forget them. But that's a gremlin. I never knew why they made the gremlin. It is the ugliest car. And little. And, but anyway, can you imagine that? That thing pulls up in front of church and Donald Trump steps out. I don't think you could fit him in there. There's, there is a back seat, but you at least got to pull the other seat way forward, if not remove it, it looks like, to get him in there. But uh, behold, your king comes to you riding in a gremlin. Or, or a pacer. Remember those? Pacer. Or, a, or, a, or the pinto. That, that was, I got to admit, I was a little downtrodden though when the first picture that I could find on the web of the gremlin was right next to a Volkswagen. I thought, I can't use that one because I have a Volkswagen. But actually, I did think of using a Volkswagen because Volkswagen, you know why, what the purpose of a Volkswagen was? They made a Volkswagen so that there would be a car that everybody could afford. That was the whole motivation behind the Volkswagen bug. But can you, can you imagine that? But that's, that's exactly what it's saying. If, if you think our president, our kings of our day, showing up to something in a, in a gremlin or in a pacer or in a, or in a pinto, that, that's what it's saying. For Jesus the king to come riding into town on a donkey, that's, that's the equivalent. He came in humble. And he's not just an earthly king. He's the king of the world. He's the creator of the universe. And he comes to us riding on this donkey. In great humility. But I want to keep that idea of humility going, but I want to tie it with the next characteristic, and that is a characteristic of exaltation. And I want to treat these two things together because they're, they're found within the Bible together so much. This idea of humility and exaltation. Mary, when she uh, was first given the news about her going to give birth to the Messiah, and then she goes to visit Elizabeth, and she bursts out into song, and we have Mary's Magnificat. Within that Magnificat, she says this about God, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She points out that God exalts those of humble estate. We're seeing the same connection with Jesus because Jesus comes riding into town, humble on the donkey, but He is exalted. He's exalted. The people start laying their coats before Him and put the coats over the donkey and they put palm branches before Him. And they're singing Hosanna, which is a statement of praise and adoration and worship. Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. So recognizing that He's the Messiah. And so they're exalting Him. He's humbling Himself and the crowds are exalting Him. Mary sees something in the character of God when God broke into her life and gave her the privilege of being the mother of the Messiah. And she says He takes the humble and He exalts them. He lifts them up. And then in Luke 18, Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee that came to the temple to worship God and this publican, the sinner, that came to worship God. And He said the Pharisee stood before God and he looked up into the heavens and he raised his hands to God and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he started listing his accomplishments for God and how good of a person he is. And he said, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I do this and I do this. I give and I, and I do all these things. And I thank you that I'm not even like this sinner over here who is where? 
standing at the door to the temple. Doesn't even feel worthy to come in. And he's not looking up into the heavens and raising his hands towards God. He's looking down. And with his hands, he's hitting himself on the chest, which was a sign of great sorrow, remorse. And he says in his prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Short and simple. But we see in this passage, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said there's two people came into the temple. One of them goes home justified by God. It's the one that humbled himself. God will take that person and exalt him. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, probably one of the, the most thorough teachings on this is found in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, he starts off telling the church, you need to put other people's needs above your own. Then he gives us the example of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's saying Jesus didn't cling to his position in heaven with God. He Rather, he let go of that to come down to earth for our sake to be our Savior. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see that? It says Jesus had the splendors of heaven and in his very person, in his very nature, he is God. But he let go of that to become a man. And then as a man, he became a servant. And then he laid down his life for us, he became obedient unto death. And it says, even death on the cross. You can't find a more humiliating death than the cross. The whole intention of the cross was to humiliate you while you died. It says, Jesus humbled himself to that degree. So this person that was infinitely greater than all humbled himself, made himself lower. But then notice what happens. It says, therefore, therefore, being because he humbled himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See what he's saying? Jesus came and he humbled himself. He, being God, made himself lower to put our needs above his own, and he came and humbled himself for us. And because of that, The Father then exalts Him so that He's given a name that is above every name and a name that every knee will bow to, whether you're in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Even people in hell are going to be bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. But every knee is going to bow to this person. Why? Because He humbled Himself to the cross for us. And then all throughout the Bible, it gives that as the example for us to follow. Our Lord set the path. He gave us the way. When the King comes, how does He come? He comes in humble, and then He is exalted. And God says, that's exactly the pattern I want you to live by. I want you to humble yourself in your life. You see, the way to exaltation is not through arrogance. The path to exaltation is through humility. James tells us in 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Peter said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let God do the exalting. So when the king comes to us, how does he come? He comes He comes in humility, but he also comes in exaltation. But then also we see him coming in authority. That ends up being kind of the crux of the matter here because Jesus, he goes into the temple 
And in the temple, we talked about it a little bit last week. Remember that? We, we, Jesus goes in and people are exchanging money in there. They've kind of turned it into a flea market. Jesus comes in. What does he do? He flips over the money tables. He, he drives out the people and the animals, cleanses them out. And this is the second time that he would do this. And the religious leaders come to him and they say, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do this? And who gave you this authority? And so they're kind of calling Jesus on the carpet here. Well, Jesus points out to them very quickly that it's not his, his authority that's in question at the moment. It's actually theirs. He does it in a couple different ways. Uh, the first way that we see is that he, uh, he, he kind of ignores them. He bypasses their question for, for the moment. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Your question is, by what authority do I do this? Now, i got a question for you. When John the Baptist came and he preached his message of repentance to Israel, I was probably thinking, I noticed you guys didn't get baptized. <laughs> he said, by what authority? John's baptism, what authority did it have? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? Where's the authority for John's baptism? They had a little unholy huddle there for a moment. And they said, well, how are we going to answer him? If we say that it's from heaven, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe? But if we say that it's from man, we got all this crowd around us that holds John to be a prophet. And Jesus is doing all these miracles, which isn't helping at all. In fact, you know, if you read in John chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, you find that a lot of people, the crowd got even bigger in Jerusalem. And the reason it got bigger in Jerusalem is because people came not only to see Jesus, they came to see Lazarus. You remember what happened with Lazarus? Lazarus died. He was dead for four days. And then Jesus rose him again from the dead. And he was at the Feast of Passover. And so these people, the, the religious leaders, they had the intention. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Because he was living proof that Jesus raised the dead. He was living proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And so these people are really caught in a tight spot. And so they come back and they say, we don't. We don't know. We're not going to answer one way or the other. And so Jesus said, well then, you couldn't answer my question. I'm not going to answer yours. But then he goes into a story. He goes into a story. And, and notice the story is very connected here because in this parable, look at the end of the parable first. Okay, The end of the parable first says in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But when tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe in him. So the end of the parable is, you should have believed in John. You should have believed what he said. You still didn't believe. Now, what was the parable? Let's be reminded real quickly. Jesus said that in this parable, the father goes to one son and he tells him, go to work in the vineyard. And the, and the son says, no, I'm not going to. But then later he changes his mind and he goes. And then he goes up to another son and he says, go work in the vineyard. And the son says, uh, yeah, I'll go do it. But then he never goes. He says, which of them did the will of the Father? And obviously it's the first one. The first one that said no at first, but then went. In Jesus' parable, that's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. That's the sinners that repented of their sin and got baptized by John and believed on Christ. There were some of those. He says, but you know who you are in the story? When we get to the whole end of the chapter, the Pharisees say they know that he was talking about them. And he was. You know who you are in the story? You're the person in the story that says, yes, Father, I'll do it, but then you don't show up. And that's exactly what these Pharisees were. They, were, they had this outward look of, yes, Father, yes, I'm right with God, I'm religious. They were very religious, but they were not right with God. But Jesus established his authority and he questioned the religious leaders themselves. Now, under Jesus' authority, it brings us to our final point, 
is that he also comes with expectations. It's not Jesus' authority that's in jeopardy here. It's the religious leader's authority that's in jeopardy. One of the ways that he pointed that out is in relationship to this fig tree. Verse 18, it says, In the morning while he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that it wasn't the season for figs. And so why would you expect to find figs if it wasn't the season for figs? But there's reason to still be looking for figs at this point. And here's why. The fig season varied quite a bit. In, in the region. Well, in drier regions, they had less crops. In moister regions, they had more crops, I think it was. So Jerusalem, being a higher elevated and a drier climate, would have had less crops of figs. Figs usually had a couple seasons that they would harvest. In real wet areas, they could have as many as 10, 10 harvests in a year. And so there was a lot of variety around the country of how often the figs got harvested. But here's the real kicker. The fig tree starts producing its fruit before it produces its leaves. And so for him to see a fig tree, even though it's out of season, that has its leaves, well, then it should have figs. And so he went up to the fig tree, and when he found no figs on it, then he cursed the fig tree, and when they walk by the next day, they see it and they're astounded. Now, what is the deal with this fig tree? The fig tree is declaration or a judgment against Israel because Israel had all the leaves, but they had no fruit. They had the, the outward show of religion, but they had no inward abiding love of God and, and faith and relationship with Him. When the king comes, he has an expectation. He expects to see fruit. And that's what the last parable is about as well. It says that he plants a vineyard, provides everything it needs, lends it out to uh, his tenants, And then when it's time to receive the fruit from that, he sends his servants. And his servants would be the prophets that went to to Israel. And what did they do? What did Israel always do to the prophets? They they persecuted them and they killed them. And and he said, that's what happened to the prophets. And and then and then and so the the religious leaders, they are the tenants in this parable. The Bible makes it very clear that in our lives, if, if we can't see the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our life, if we can't see the fruit of righteousness, then we don't have a root that's connected to God either. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these people would add a guise of religion, but not the sincerity of it. You will recognize them by their fruits, he says. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. And a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, symbolizing hell. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. Matthew chapter 13, remember that's the parable of the sower that plants a seed. Farmer plants a seed in all these different kinds of soils. The one seed that landed in good soil, how do we know it landed in good soil? Because it produced a crop. It produced, it produced fruit. And probably the most lengthy and clear passage on this, uh, though they're all very clear, it would be John chapter 15. And that's where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The vine cannot bear fruit unless it's connected to the branches. If it bears fruit, it gets pruned so that it produces even more fruit. If it does not bear fruit, it gets cut off and thrown into the fire. It's good for nothing to be, but to be burned. So in John chapter 15, he, he talks about us abiding in Him and Him abiding in us. 
And how does that happen? By my words. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's two different things, the elements that he has here. It's the word of God and it's prayer. You know what the sad thing is? He's talking to scribes and Pharisees. These are the people that had the word of God. These are the people that it was their job to study the word of God and to teach the rest of their, civil, the rest of their community. They had the word of God, but what Jesus is saying is, you know what, you might possess the word of God, but it does not possess you. It is not in you. You're not abiding in it, and it is not abiding in you. He came in credibility. There's proof of who he is. He comes with humility, and he also comes with exaltation. He humbles himself, and the Father exalts him. He also comes with great authority. He has the authority of God, because he is God. And... With that authority, he has great expectation. What is his expectation? He expects when he comes to us, just like when he came to them, he expects to see fruit in our lives. 